0: Anthony, basically dropping a sermonette there. Vanessa as well. I feel like I could just call the altar team up. We could close there. But we are going to dig into God's word tonight. We're actually starting a new series tonight, which I'm excited about. It's called Autumn on the Mount. So you could probably connect the dots. We're going to spend this autumn and this fall working our way through the sermon on the mount. But it's great to see all your faces as well. I think it was Friday when we made the call like, yeah, we're going to go forward with service because we could just tell Florence wasn't going to hit us. But you do that wondering, all right, (laughs) I don't know who's going to be there, but it's nice to see. I mean, if I wasn't watching the news. And I look outside, I would have no idea there was a, a storm passing. But I do want to just encourage us to continue to pray for North Carolina and, and South Carolina and everybody that's been hit. It's, it's one thing to ask, and it's also an awesome thing to see us acting and uh, bringing that stuff in, because that's going to be sent down in an 18-wheeler down to North Carolina to bless some people. But even if I could just now, can we pray? Can we pray for North Carolina, Lord God? We lift up each person, each household, God, each family, each neighborhood that's been struck and devastated by this hurricane. God, we see the graphics on the Weather Channel, but they're living it, Lord God. And we pray for each person that's there on the ground where Florence has just wreaked havoc, Lord God. We pray for your presence. God, we pray for your provision. God, we pray for miracles that people are going to be able to talk about years from now that you worked as people were rescued, as, as people were saved, Lord God. And we simply pray that in this season, as they recover, that, that nobody will be able to ask, where is God? Because your hands and feet will be so present. God, doing the work of ministry for those that are hurting and those that have been uh, just impacted by this storm, Lord God. But we pray these things because, again, as we worship, we know you're King of kings and you're Lord of lords. And, and these storms, they're the dust on your feet, Lord God. We know you're sovereign and almighty. So do your work in North Carolina. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. But before we get going tonight, I also want to show a video to kind of kick off our thoughts. I have a dream that one day, no matter how long it may take us, as long as we have faith in our goals and uh, an unconquerable willpower, knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. This is a time of challenge to our interest and our values. And it's a time to test our wisdom and our skills. This will not be a campaign of half measures. And we will accept no outcome but victory. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. Read my lips. We will respond forcefully heavy as they are, the cost of action must be weighed against the price of inaction. We aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Let us be united for peace. Let us also be united against defeat. Because let us understand. There is no way we can go forward except together and let us work until our work is done assured of the rightness of our cause and confident of the victories to come with the unbounding determination of our people we will gain the inevitable triumph so help us God there's new ground to be broken and new action to be taken it does require however Our best effort and our willingness to believe in ourselves and to believe in our capacity to perform great deeds. Lift up your heart. All will come right out of the depths of sorrow and of sacrifice. We'll be born again the glory of mankind. And we will take action when action is required. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. If we succeed, It will not be because of what we have, but it will be because of what we are. So I share that. You don't have to give applause for that, but I share that because Scripture says that life and death is in the power of the tongue. And One of the moments where it's so evident in our culture is when there's a well-delivered, timely, uh, well-constructed speech. Or oration, where, where somebody gets up before a crowd and, and speaks and exhorts. Famous speeches like the ones in that video, throughout history, they've, they've lifted hearts in dark times. They've given hope in the midst of despair. They've refined the character of men and women. They've inspired brave feats. They've given courage to the weary. They've even honored those that have sacrificed. And ultimately, some of these speeches have changed the course of history. Like you look at history, history is littered with Significant speeches that that were powerful in the moment. You think of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. You think of Abe Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. Think about JFK's speech about going to the moon or Ronald Reagan's speech after the Challenger mission failed. But if I was to put my money on the most significant speech or oration or group of words ever spoken, I would have to put my money on Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you say, well, that's easy for you to say because you're a pastor. But you could argue that no speech has ever been more pondered, more quoted, more debated, sparked more sermons, and sparked more discussions in the centuries since. Its ethical and moral teachings have galvanized people of all different backgrounds. Gandhi was influenced by it as he worked for India's freedom through nonviolent revolution. Martin Luther King Jr. worked to make his teachings the foundation of his political program of nonviolence and civil disobedience. And the prayer laid out in the Our Father is familiar all around the globe, across borders, and it's recited at battlefields, it's recited at bedside. The very title of Jesus' words speak to its setting. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And the setting of historic speeches is often what lends their power. These speeches that were in that video, those weren't water cooler conversations. That wasn't shop talk. Those were critical moments after tragedy, before daring attempts. And so for the Sermon on the Mount, I want to look more at the setting than just the fact it happened on a mountain, although we'll get to that. But if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and its setting, Rome had conquered and was occupying the Holy Land and Jerusalem. And the Jews were waiting on a Messiah that they envisioned as a political savior. From 67 to 37 B.C., before the emergence of Herod, historians say that no less than 150,000 men, women, and children died in revolutions as they resisted Roman reign, Roman religion, and they clung to their belief in God. So by the time Herod ruled and took over Jerusalem and the surrounding region, this was a region drained of, of resources. This was a region drained of energy clinging to a promise. What promise? Well, Old Testament prophets speak again and again of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And it points to how God would install this kingdom on earth and lead his people back to glory. And so the Sermon on the Mount happens in Matthew chapter 5. And you can actually turn there now because we're going to get there. But in Matthew chapter 4, In Matthew 4, 17, it says, Jesus began to preach. And these were the first words of his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven, that would have sparked something in his listeners. In Matthew 4, 23, it says, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. I love the message version where it says, God's kingdom was his theme. And it's from these accounts. And from this setting that Jesus launches into the Sermon on the Mount. And again, these Jews listening whose loved ones had lived and died under Roman rule, no doubt their ears were itching for some kind of rallying cry like the one we get from William Wallace in Braveheart or whatever the president's name is in Independence Day where it's, hey, we're going we're gonna to rise up. We're not going to take it. But I want to look before we even jump into the words ...of the Sermon on the Mount in the coming weeks. Tonight I simply want to look at the setting and the context. I want to look at two short verses. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And that's it. We're going to dig into that. Because it gives us the setting for the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it presents us with two of the most significant questions... ...we can ever ask ourselves about Jesus Christ. But to start Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and he launches into the Sermon in the Mount. But again, tonight I want to look at the setting. And the first words I want to look at is seeing the multitudes. Because the setting of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus, when he was at the height of his popularity. If this was modern-day venues, it would have been sellout after sellout. Because again, many wanted to know more about this coming kingdom. Others were just curious. They wanted to see some of these miracles and satiate their curiosity. But there was a crowd. And Christ sees the multitudes. Christ sees the crowd. And Christ has a heart for every individual within it. And Christ has empathy for them. Again, eventually he would die on the cross for each and every person present in this crowd. But in terms of crowds themselves, Jesus had a very tenuous relationship with crowds. But we live in a culture, we love crowds. Right? We love the applause. We value applause. We value likes. We value shares. But Jesus repeatedly, again and again in the Gospels, will withdraw from the crowd and withdraw from all the noise because his eyes were always above the crowd and on the cross. The world didn't need Jesus, simply Jesus the prophet, simply Jesus the miracle worker, or simply Jesus the, the really good teacher What the world needed, the crowd needed, what you and I need is Jesus the Savior, who would one day go to the cross and die for our sins and be a sacrifice on our behalf so when God sees us, he can see his righteousness. That's what the world needed. And he knew that the temptation for us as humans is to accept a lesser purpose and identity because we're living for the admiration and the applause and the acceptance of others. And we end up trying to be what people want us to be rather than what they need us to be and what God has called us to become. That's why Christ so often, it's like he gave the the masses in the crowd a stiff arm and he would withdraw from them again and again. And as it says here, he saw the multitudes, but then he withdrew. He went up a mountain in a move that's totally counter to our culture and the likes and the applause in the crowd. He pulled away from the crowd before he opened his mouth and began to teach what's also noteworthy is not only did he see the multitudes, it says he went up on a mountain. So this oration, this sermon and speech that he gives, it's not in one of the ancient Roman amphitheaters. He doesn't try to maximize his crowd or his voice. He does it on a mountain. And this is supremely significant when you look at Scripture, that this goes down in our Bibles as the sermon on the mount. Because mountains are special places of divine revelation throughout Scripture. Matter of fact, the last time that God had spoken to a group from a mountain was all the way back in Exodus speaking to the Israelites at Sinai through Moses. But here we see God is here in the flesh as Jesus Christ speaking to this crowd. As Hebrews puts it, the author of Hebrews says that Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is ruler over the whole thing. There's extreme significance in who is speaking here. And so often when we look at speeches and important moments where people got up and spoke and inspired people, there's power in who was doing the talking. It's almost like that saying, people won't uh, care what you know until they know that you care. There's a weight that comes when, when they know who's speaking. They know who it is. So many of those people in that video were presidents, prime ministers. When those people speak, there's a weight. How much more weight do the words of God in the flesh carry? But even if somebody hadn't heard of Jesus, had no idea who he was, woke up from a coma and showed up here at the Sermon on the Mount, they would have been clued in quickly. Why? Well, one reason is you've got this whole crowd gathered around somebody who's teaching, and it says he was seated. So Jesus isn't giving this speech, this sermon, like so many great speeches that we see where they're, they're standing, there's a microphone, there's a podium, he's seated. And this is culturally significant. Now, in our modern-day church, if a pastor, you know, grabs a stool like this one, pulls it out, usually he sits down and he's like, we're going to have a conversation tonight, right? It's like, kind of like a semi-formal thing when you pull out the stool and you're seating when you're preaching. But in that culture, rabbis and teachers would teach sitting down. So this made things formal, not informal. This was upping the formality. This was the posture of a religious leader. So what does this mean? It means that these aren't offhand comments that he was making in passing. You know, for emphasis, Matthew even says in this passage, right before the Sermon on the Mount starts, he doesn't say like we might write Jesus said. He says he opened his mouth, which in the Greek, and when Matthew was writing, he would have done that with intentionality because that is what they used for the prophets. And when somebody was about to say something important and profound, So Matthew realizes this is something important. Again, this means these aren't suggestions on the mount. These aren't just considerations on the mount. These are life-transforming truths that we as disciples are supposed to apply from the inside out. So he's teaching these truths. He's sitting down and people are gathered around to listen. And this sight wouldn't have been very uncommon in their culture because they didn't just listen to religious teaching to gain insight and live better. They listened to religious teachers for sheer entertainment value. Now that might sound wild, right? Like who, who does that? Take away your TV, right? Take away your smartphone, your radio, the movies, and these people would throw a picnic and listen to people teach ethics and morals and religion. TED Talks would have been right up their alley. They would have loved it. But this reality that, They would listen as a pastime. It's highlighted when you look back at the the prophet Ezekiel. It speaks in, in the book of Ezekiel about him. It says, your people talk about you in their houses and whisper about you at the doors. They say to each other, come on, let's go hear what the prophet. Tell us what the Lord is saying. It says, you're very entertaining to them, like someone who sings love songs with a beautiful voice or plays fine music on an instrument. Now listen, the temptation for us is to treat Jesus the same way. Throughout history, we've had a dangerous tendency to see Jesus as a great teacher without considering his role as Savior or hear his claims to be God, where he becomes entertaining, enlightening, but never redeeming. It feeds right into our cultural complacency when we look at Jesus this way, because we as a culture, as a whole, we like to say, yeah, Jesus was a great teacher. He was an all-around great guy. He teaches us to love people and be compassionate and seek justice. So if you want to follow Jesus, good for you, right? To each his own. But me, I wrestle with it. I've talked to people again and again who say, yeah, I, I wrestle with it. I get that he's a good teacher. Some people look to him as Savior, but I'm not so sure. And my first question to people like that is often, okay, how are you wrestling with it? Right? Like, what are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you grappling with? And so often the answer is nothing. Usually I'm like, that's not wrestling. That's hanging out, right? That's not, that's not wrestling. There's this lazy religious indifference that never truly examines and decides for myself and yourself whether Jesus is exactly who he says he was, which is God. It ignores the fact that Jesus gave people an all or nothing approach to himself. You're all in or you're all out. In the Gospels, Jesus said, I and the Father one, And the response of the religious leaders is they wanted to stone him because they realized that this is him saying he's God. Jesus says in another conversation, before Abraham was, I am. Now, it'd be cool enough if, if he said before Abraham was, I was like that'd be cool. But he doesn't say I was. He says, I am, which is profound because that's how God revealed himself to Moses in the Old Testament. You know, Jesus says he, he, he witnessed Satan fall from heaven. Like, that's not normal. He predicts his death, which I guess somebody could do, but not only that, he predicts his resurrection, and then he backs it up. Kind of a big deal. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus presents this all-or-nothing approach to himself, that all life and all eternity, it hinges on him, Jesus Christ. So to chalk him up, as a great teacher of philosophy or morals, and then keep it moving, it's kind of wild. Because imagine you walk into, imagine you're back in college. I have weird dreams all the time when I'm back in college, so journey with me, right? We're back in college or high school, and you walk into your philosophy or ethics 101 class, and the professor's like, we're gonna talk a lot about philosophy, but in doing so, we're gonna talk a lot about me, because without me, life is pointless. Because without me, life doesn't even exist. Because without me, your life is a waste. You probably transfer or drop out of that class after that conversation because you're like, this person is crazy. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, people so often say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Again, throughout the Gospels, Jesus presents us with this all or nothing approach to himself. And it doesn't hinge on whether we take his teachings and apply them well. It hinges on whether or not we accept him as Lord. And this is the first question that we have to ask ourselves. And and it's one of the most important questions we can ever ask. It's, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Because indifference and complacency and to each his own, it's not an option. Right? The two responses Jesus gives us is faith or rejection. And complacency and indifference, that's not on the faith side. And we might say, I have faith in Jesus. But as scriptures say, faith without works is dead. If you show somebody your life, you'll show them just who Jesus is to you. You know, for so many of us, Jesus is just like one of many subjects in life. And for many of us, shout out to the homeschoolers who only have one teacher, right, Y'all have the easy security prompt where it's like, who was your favorite teacher in second grade? Mom, duh. Like, (laughs) hey, I was in homeschooled in second grade, so I'm joking myself. I can do that. But I went on to have dozens upon dozens of teachers through high school and college. And in our Western culture, right, when we think of Jesus as a teacher, that's the trap. We have so many teachers that teach us so many things. And if Jesus is just one of many teachers, that's a trap. Think about it. Jesus teaches religion, but I like to keep my religion apart from my sociology to where sometimes we try to divorce even social justice from the gospel. So we say Jesus is Lord, but we love our neighbor no better than those who don't say he's Lord. Or we might say Jesus teaches morality, but I like to keep that separate from my biology and sexuality. Right. So so we might say Jesus is Lord, but we don't steward our body and sexuality any different than those that don't. Or we might say Jesus taught philosophy but I like to keep that separate from my math and finances and budget right so we might say Jesus is lord but we steward our blessings and finances no different than those who don't that's the trap because Jesus is either lord overall or he's not lord at all he's either lord of all or he's not lord at all and if he's just one teacher in one closed off area in his life in your life he's not truly lord that's the trap We all have to answer this question, who is Jesus to you? Because to the crowd in this passage, he was a teacher, which is not a bad thing, but he's so much more. To the disciples that came to him, he was Savior, he was Messiah, he was King of kings, he was Lord of lords. Again, show somebody your life, it'll show them your answer. Jesus doesn't want us to just study him and apply his teachings like some additional academic project. He wants us to approach him and receive him as savior and lord overall. Overall, because it's not overall, he's not lord at all. That's the question. Who is Jesus to you? And as we approach the sermon on the mount, it's important to note that we're not changed and transformed by applying these teachings. We're changed and transformed by Jesus, by him. It's in him we find the grace and the holy spirit to walk them out. To come to the Sermon on the Mount and not believe who Jesus was, that he's Savior and the king he claims to be, and try to apply it, it's an exercise in futility. Bishop Augustine of Hippo put it this way, understanding is the reward of faith. Seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. Jesus isn't given info about the way, the truth, and the life so that we can understand it and then believe. He is the way. The truth and the life. And all his teachings and all the hope that we have flow from this very fact. We all have to answer this question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? What does my life say he is? One teacher out of many in one focused area where all these other voices are informing the other ones? Or is he Lord overall? Is he our Savior? That's the first question of two. The second one is informed by this picture we get that his disciples came to him. So you look at the Sermon on the Mount, and in my head, he's always preaching to the entire crowd, the whole thousands that are there, right? But there's no microphone he had where everybody would be able to hear him on the entire mountainside. Jesus, it says again in this passage, he saw the crowd, and then he withdrew. He went up this mountainside, and he sat down, and he began to teach. The only people that would have been able to hear him were the ones that came to him. And Matthew notes that one group and one group alone came to him to listen, and that was his disciples, And it's notable that this is the first time that Matthew uses the word disciple. And he uses it more than once. Matter of fact, in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, where it says, go and make disciples of all nations, right? The the verse we memorize in church because it's our call and our calling as believers. He uses that word again, disciples. You know, this is a question that the church has grappled with for so long. What's a disciple? How do we best make them, right? How do we, Jesus tells us to make disciples of all the nations. How do we best do that? What's the input that produces the desired output? But you know, the question I often get as a pastor is people that want to be discipled ask questions like, how do I grow? How do I mature in my faith? How do I get closer to Christ? How do I, how do I look more like Jesus? And there's a big answer, but the short answer is often, hey, you want to grow up? Show up. If you want to grow up, show up. If you don't show up, you're not going to grow And maybe you'd say again, sure, you'd say that you're a pastor, right? But I shared this statistic last week at Engage, our class, about what it looks like to be members on mission. In 2011, there was this massive survey done where they talked to all these different pastors and theologians and professors. They tried to narrow down what are the qualities of a disciple? What are the things that a disciple will be doing if they look like Christ? A lot of them look like our 12 pathways that are outlined in that book, Praxis. If you don't have one, get one. But then they asked, okay, what's, what are people doing that's helping them grow in these areas? And they surveyed, I think it was 4,000 churchgoers in North America and 1,000 in Canada. Shout out to Canada. Right? So all of North America. And they found overwhelmingly that the people that were growing in these ways, the people that were growing as disciples were doing three things that stood out more than anything else. The first is they were reading Scripture. Shout out to the Bible. Without the Bible, you don't go deep, you just get weird. (laughs) So, you need the Bible to anchor you, you need its truth. But then, secondly, the the two other things attending a a service at church, a worship service. The the second, attending a small group, class, or life group. They were showing up. You wanna grow up? Show up. The second question we have to answer not just who is Christ to me, who am I to Christ? Who am I to Christ? Are you a follower and a disciple or are you part of the crowd? Because the crowd is curious and it hangs around on the periphery, right? They're found throughout the gospels. But disciples are committed. The disciple comes. Don't settle to be a part of the crowd. Show up. Step into communion, not just with Christ, but community, where we step into communion together. All these things, we're we're pumping in the announcements, right? Not just services on the weekend, but life groups, the woman's brunch, the men's retreat. These are all opportunities for us to show up so we can continue to grow together. The disciples came. They came to Jesus. It's wild to me that, that Jesus is giving One of the greatest speeches, sermons, orations of all time. And there were people there that were cool with just hanging back. Didn't hear it. Like when I get to heaven, that's one of the things I want to do. I want to hear the Sermon on the Mount. I want to hear the cadence where he raised his voice, brought it down, all of that. I don't know. Everybody's got a list when they get to heaven, things they want. I want that. Get a nice bucket of popcorn drenched in butter because butter ain't going to matter in heaven. And just sit there and listen to the Sermon on the Mount and watch it. But not everybody there heard it, saw it, because not everybody came. Jesus was there in flesh and blood, God in the flesh, and yet some people were content to just be a part of the crowd and not come close and gather around Jesus as he he taught. And then you keep reading the New Testament. You get to Hebrews, where there are still people alive that were there when Jesus walked the earth. And already the author of Hebrews feels like it's necessary to write to the church and say, hey, guys, let's not forget to come together Let's not forget to gather. Let's not forget to show up together and worship God so that we can grow and provoke one another to good deeds and growth. Kind of encouraging to me to see that this was already a problem 2,000 years ago, right? But he says, let's show up so we can grow up. And I get it. Tonight I'm preaching to the choir because Florence is basically doing a lap around us and you're here at church anyways, right? But hear me out. There are people that are at church this weekend, whether it's here, elsewhere in the United States. That won't be there next week, right? I know that's not you, right? But there are people who are at church and sometime next Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they'll be like, do we go to church this week? I don't know. If you want to grow, you'll show. Want to grow up? Show up. And I get it, right? I preach this all the time. We're the church Monday through Friday. The front lines for ministry, they're not here. They're out there. And I so often say to people, you feel distant from Jesus, don't just come to church. Go out where Jesus would have been, When he was in flesh and blood, ministering to the needy, you'll find him there. But I say all that and say this is where we're equipped for ministry, where we grow. It's where we're filled. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, Paul talks about the church. And when he says the word church, he's talking about the local gathering of believers. It's this word in the Greek that speaks to a local gathering and assembly. And he says of the church, the church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. It's a powerful statement. And right before that, he says, at the center of the universe, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. If you picture it, Christ is at the center. If it was like the solar system, the sun is the sun. The sun of God is the sun, and we get to choose where we are in orbit. The crowd is at a distance, right? Picture, it's Pluto. We don't know if it's a planet or not, right? It's, it's out there with Neptune. Too far away to experience the fullness of life and the life that's available through the sun. Closer in orbit, you got community. Closer still in orbit, you've got the core. You look at Jesus' life, all these were present. You had a crowd that followed him, not just the curious but the religious leaders that opposed him. They were a part of the crowd all the way out there. Then there was a community. He had disciples and followers. But even Jesus had a core, Peter, James, and John, that were intimate with him and knew his heart. And that was, they were so close. They came to him again and again and again. Where are you in orbit? Who are you to Jesus? Are you close enough to experience the life that he offers and experience it to the full? And mind you, Jesus loved people at every level. Again, he died for each one of the people that were in that crowd. But Jesus was keenly aware of who was curious and who was committed, who was a part of the crowd and who were the disciples that came to him. And one of the greatest dangers as believers is to get lost in the crowd because the crowd tags along with Christ as long as it's socially acceptable and psychologically comfortable but eventually The radical teachings of Christ, which we'll get into in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're about to dive into, will drive us to the end of our comfort zone. So curiosity gives way to our desire for comfort. And that's why in the Gospels we see the crowd eventually falls away when time gets hard. The crowd responds to follow me with excuses and reasons to stay back. The crowds were curious, but disciples were committed. Jesus doesn't call us to be a part of the crowd. He calls us to be disciples. So the question is, who am I to Jesus? Who would he say that I am? Hopefully we can all say, disciples, that we're following him. We're coming to him, not just on the weekend. We're coming to him through his word, right, as that's one of those three steps that people were growing in. But we got to remember that as disciples, he didn't just call us out of the crowd. He calls us back into the crowd to make disciples. Right? The Sermon on the Mount is primarily, we see, because the disciples came to him, he was teaching his disciples, primarily it's instructions for his disciples. Anyone who calls themselves a follower of Christ, that includes me, and that includes you. But secondarily, it holds out this invitation for the crowds to enter in, because we see by the end of his teaching, and by the end of this passage in Matthew, where Jesus had withdrawn at the beginning from the crowd, it says that at the end the crowd was exclaiming that Jesus was teaching them with an authority. So Some of them entered in. Some of them came. Jesus holds open this invitation for the crowd to become a part. See, Jesus, even when he's teaching his disciples, he's always got his eye on the lost. He always sees the one, even when he's with the 99. The crowd isn't just a sea of faces to him. He knows each single one by name. If I could have the worship team come up, guys, America has a crowd. America's got a ginormous crowd. Because roughly 80% of America, in a recent survey, self-reports as Christian. They believe in God. They believe in Jesus. 80% of America would say that they believe in God. But as a follow-up question to each one that answered the first question, they asked, okay, if you got to the gates of heaven and you were asked why you should be let in, what would your answer be? And an overwhelming majority of the answers to this question were, I never did fill in the blank certain bad things. Or I always tried to do good things. See, to this crowd, Jesus is a teacher. I've done my best to apply his teachings, to do what he says is right, to not do what he says is wrong, to do what he taught. And hopefully I did it good enough to where they'll let me in. Where I'll be able to get into heaven. But man, I'm here to tell you tonight, conversion, salvation, repentance. It's not about cleaning up clinging to some teachings, it's about clinging to Christ, to Jesus, and not just some teachings on a mountain but the cross he died on at Calvary. Not as teacher but as Savior. Sacrificing for me, sacrificed for you. Without knowing Christ is Savior, Redeemer, King and Lord. When you come to the Sermon on the Mount it's a practice in futility. To try to follow these instructions is like doing it with broken legs. You need to be healed first and redeemed. And if you come to Christ's words as a disciple, you begin to realize that this is, this is an ordination sermon. We talked last week about being ordained so that we could preach to ourselves and take God's word and encourage ourselves in the Lord. But, man, we're also ordained because we're a part of every disciple that he's speaking to that go out into that crowd and make disciples. Again, at the end of the book of Matthew, it says, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them what I have commanded you." Here in Matthew chapter 5, we have Jesus' first commands, Jesus' first teachings right here in the Sermon on the Mount, His core teaching of what it means to be a disciple and follower of him. So we have an exciting autumn ahead as we work our way through this text, but may we not forget the very first words of this entire passage where it says, Jesus saw the multitudes. Because elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus sees the multitudes, and he weeps over them. Weeps over them. Because he says they were like sheep without a shepherd. Those are the people that we've been called to reach. And in this passage, he's ordaining the disciples, and he's ordained each and every one of us to be that kingdom of priests and that holy nation that, that was supposed to be ordained at Sinai. He's ordaining each one of us. Again, America has a crowd. And if we call ourselves disciples, we're called to go into it and make disciples. We're called to show up, but we're not called to just show up here. We're called to show up out there because as we talked about earlier, this is important, equipping for ministry, but that's where the ministry happens. That's the front lines of ministry. You might say, well, I wasn't called to ministry. No, we all were called to ministry. Congratulations, you've been ordained Sermon on the Mount to go minister to the law and make disciples. But as we do that, may we go with full confidence knowing who Christ is to us and who we are to Jesus. And if we could all stand, we're going to go into worship. But I pray that as we sing these words about Jesus, as we sing these words about Jesus Christ, we'd be able to sing as we sang earlier, Master, Savior, Jesus, my King, my Master, my Savior. We sang earlier about how every knee would bow. Because Jesus, it says in Philippians 2, he came and humbled himself and died on the cross. And, and it says that God gave him a name above every name. A place of such honor that every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Not just a good man, not just a teacher, but Jesus is Lord. And God, I pray that every knee in this place, every heart in this place would bow to you. It wouldn't wait, it wouldn't hesitate. But well, God, I pray mentalized you. You're maybe over here and we, we apply your teachings in this area but we've got all these other voices feeding us, Lord God. I pray that you would convict us with your spirit in love but help us to rearrange our heart, rearrange our ears so that we can hear your voice as Lord, as Savior. We lift you up and we praise you again, Jesus, for who you are and what you did. Not just for your teachings on the Sermon on the Mount but for the cross on the Mount of Calvary, Lord God. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be in this place ministering to every heart. If you do prayer for anything, the hilts are in this back corner. I'm up here. Otherwise, let's worship. Let's praise the King of kings and Lord of lords.